Jesus is mockingly dressed as a king, presented in public not for praise, but for abuse. And John wants us to recognize that this bruised and beaten man, he is God's saving king for all who will believe. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and Jonathan as we picture Jesus suffering at the hands of his abusers, bloodied and beaten and mocked and and spat upon. It's hard to fathom him, picture him as the ruler of the universe. Why, Why would the king of kings subject himself to that kind of abuse? Well, this is, in a sense, the mystery of all mysteries. It's the great paradox at the heart of the message of Jesus and the story of Jesus, that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, supreme in all the universe, would humble himself, uh, become flesh, become a human being, live in humility, and then die in agony. And if we're thinking people, we've got to look at that history and look at that story and ask, why would he do this? And, and of course, the answer centers on our salvation, on the redemption of all who would believe. And that's what we've got to grapple with together as we enter into the narrative, the Easter story in John's gospel. Why is, why is Jesus doing this? And what does it mean for us? Well, that is what we're looking at today, what we're going to grapple with. So if you can, open your Bible and join us in the book of John. We'll be in John 18 and 19 as we continue the message, Who is the True King? Here is Jonathan. Jesus is often notably quiet as proceedings unfold. He seems to stay in one place, unmoved, dignified, even in his captivity as Pilate scurries back and forth. But increasingly, and by degree, John shows us that Jesus' composure throughout speaks of his true identity and his true authority. The first great hint comes in John's brief comment in verse 32 of chapter 18. The religious leaders who so want Jesus dead have brought him to Pilate, as we said, so that Pilate might sentence him They themselves, they didn't have the legal power or the legal authority to sentence anyone to death during the time of Roman rule in Israel. And and even if they did have that power, their method of execution would have been death by stoning. But they weren't going to try that with the Romans, and they probably actually preferred the more dramatic method of crucifixion for this execution. But as they argue and as they cajole for this, John simply tells us this, verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show but what, by what kind of death he was going to die. Back in chapter 12 of John's gospel, Jesus had said already that he would be lifted up from the earth. He, he, he said that. He knew that he was going to be crucified. In fact, he planned that he would be crucified. The Old Testament law in the book of Deuteronomy said that the one who is hung on a tree bears the curse of God for law-breaking. And Jesus came that he might bear the curse of God for the people by dying on that tree. That was his plan. That was his intention. 
and all the ugly machinations of the crowds, all the pathetic dithering of Pilate, all of it together, John tells us, was unfolding as it was in order that the word that Jesus himself had spoken would be fulfilled. Yes, he is the prisoner on trial, but he is at the very same time the ruler who reigns. He, he came to earth intentionally to die, and he came to earth intentionally to die in that way. This was no cosmic accident. This was the will and the intention of the cosmic ruler, the Son of God himself. It's no mistake that the question of Jesus' kingship comes up immediately after all this, right in the following verse. Pilate asks that question outright, as we've seen, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't give him a direct answer. But when pressed, he says this much, as we've heard, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus, he doesn't deny his royal pedigree or his royal power. But he does tell Pilate plainly that his kingdom is not like the kingdom of Caesar. His rule doesn't operate on the same principles and is not expressed by the same means. His authority, it comes from above. It is not presently seen in physical, military, or geographical terms. It will be made manifest in a time to come, in a day to come. But for now, the authority of Jesus Christ, it is shown in a different way. In a way that Pilate cannot recognize. A way that the crowd at present, they don't see. Verse 37, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. For everyone who is of the truth listens to me. Jesus the Messiah came into the world not wielding a sword or a scepter, but proclaiming a message, declaring words of truth. And he has spent his earthly ministry speaking that message wherever he could. The message that humanity stands condemned because of sin, guilty because of rebellion against God, declaring the message that he came as the saving king, the promised Messiah, who would bring healing to this broken world, who would bring forgiveness to this guilty world, who would bring life to this dying world. And although Pilate can't see it, and although the world won't understand it, the very trial at which Jesus stands and which will lead to his death, this very trial will become the means by which Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King, Jesus the Savior will fulfill his word of truth. His unjust death will itself become the mechanism by which he saves all those who are of the truth who have believed his word of truth. Pilate, of course, he has no understanding of any of this. His authority is by now severely discredited. And with each moment of this mockery of a trial, Jesus is emerging more and more clearly as the true ruler. 
as we observers start to see this, we realize that the scene at the beginning of chapter 19 is laden with irony and betrays more truth than any of the actors within it know, save Jesus himself. Just listen to it again. Just picture the scene in your mind as I read chapter 19 and verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe, purple being that traditional color of royalty. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Jesus is mockingly dressed as a king, crowned with an instrument of humiliation and of torture, presented in public not for praise but for abuse. No one present at the time sees it, but of course, it is in this very mockery and suffering and rejection and pain that Jesus does enter into his kingly calling. He will establish his kingdom and he will lead his subjects, not from a chariot, but from a cross. He must go through these agonies to save his people and to secure his realm. This is indeed a royal presentation of a true king, but it breaks every mold and it confounds every expectation. And John wants us, the readers, to recognize that this bruised and beaten man, he is God's Messiah. He is God's saving king for all who will believe. By now, the tables really are turned. Pilate is fearful, verse 8. Something within him has rightly caused him to fear what he's doing, to fear the implications of all this. And Jesus is now bolder and clearer in what he says, declaring that Pilate has only a delegated authority, delegated from above. Pilate may think that he's running the show, but the unseen hand of God is actually overruling in all this. This is heaven's plan, not Jerusalem's plan or Rome's plan. This is God's will, not the will of the crowd and not the will of Pilate. And the true king in this scene, it's not Caesar or his delegate. It is the one who bears the crown of thorns upon his head. In weakness and folly, Pilate prepares now to have Jesus killed but he does so while making the clear declaration that Jesus is indeed the king. Middle of verse 14, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Verse 15, Shall I crucify your king? And the fateful answer that returns is, of course, Yes, crucify him. Pilate will deliver this king to be crucified. Verse 16, But little could he know that the king before him, would only enter into his kingdom by way of the cross. He, he will bring salvation as he, the innocent one, dies, that the guilty may go free. 
And so, even in this cowardly and unjust decision, Pilate has served the King of Kings, and he has caused the will of the King to be done. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, a message called, Who is the True King? Now, we do have to pause the message right here, but we'll get back to it in just a moment, so I hope you'll stay with us. By the way, if you ever miss a broadcast, come to our website. You can listen online. The website address is EncounterTheTruth.org, and you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. Again, come to the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Here is Jonathan. A changeable ruler, a crucified king. And now we turn to observe the crowd and to see in the words and the actions of the crowd a choice we all face. The story of the crowd, it is a cautionary tale for each one of us. They have come baying for blood, and they have come in a spirit of hatred and abuse, but they have also come to witness a trial and to hear the verdict of a judge. And as we watch this crowd in their interactions with Jesus and their reactions to Jesus, well, they expose so much of the human heart, so much of our own heart actually, as it is and would be, apart from the grace of God. The hypocrisy we see here, it is breathtaking, and it shows itself right away. Just consider again the actions of the crowd. They take Jesus to Pilate to have him condemned, but they are holding to their religious scruples all the while. Verse 28 of chapter 18, notice what they they do. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Jewish tradition said that entering the house of a Gentile would lead to defilement for a period of time. And defilement meant missing out on the Passover feast. And so these religious people, they want to maintain their ritual purity, even while they falsely accuse the Messiah of doing evil, verse 30. And even as they deliver the Son of God himself to be killed. The hypocrisy, it is stunning. It is breathtaking. But it is, of course, the kind of hypocrisy that resides in every sinful heart. It is the kind of hypocrisy of which you and I are so very capable ourselves. We claim to stand for what is right, while all the while we can push aside the Lord Jesus Christ and his word of truth. And worse than that, we've seen and we see that it's possible for human society to outrightly reject God's righteous king, not simply as being irrelevant, but even as being evil. We see it all the time, even today. As a society, as a wider society, we've gone from a place where Jesus is largely viewed as benign and kindly, even if he is widely ignored, to a place where now his word is often seen as subversive, as damaging, even as evil. The claim of Jesus Christ to be the exclusive and unique way and truth and life, those claims are seen as being intolerant and unpalatable. Many of the assertions of the word of Jesus about human behavior and ethics and about sin, these are now seen by many as hateful and as corrosive to a decent society and a perverse moral high ground, sometimes even a spiritual high ground, is appropriated by those who would condemn Jesus and his word. 
And the drama of these verses, the dark drama of these verses, is replayed on some level in modern form and is acted out in modern garb. It's breathtaking to see the ugliness of this religious crowd, but it only gets worse. Once Pilate reaches his conclusion that Jesus is innocent, you remember how he returns to the crowd to call for his release, but he gives the crowd the choice. Verse 39, you have this custom that I should release one man at the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. And we're told that Barabbas was a robber. This preference of the crowd would seem incredible to us, even incomprehensible. Barabbas was a violent, a dangerous man. We, we learn elsewhere that he'd led an insurrection. He was damaging to society, there's no question. It was clearly undesirable to have him in circulation once more. But the crowd want him released, not because they're fond of Barabbas, but because they hate Jesus so much. And there's no rational accounting for this. There's no explanation for it that makes any real sense on any level. All we can observe and all we can consider as we read this is that this actually forms part of a repeated pattern of human behavior. It represents a fixed preference of the sinful human heart. There is something about Jesus Christ, something about his purity, his uncompromising goodness, something about the clarity of his word and the call of his kingdom, the offer of his gospel. There's something that the darkness and the sinfulness of the human heart recoils away from and rebels against. This is actually something that John has been speaking about right from the very start of his gospel. In chapter one, as he opens up the story of Jesus, he tells us that Jesus came to his own but his own people did not receive him. See, that's the great tragedy of the story of Jesus. And it's set out at the very start. When Jesus makes perhaps his greatest statement on the saving purpose of his mission in, in John chapter 3 and verse 16, he follows it by saying this, John chapter 3 and verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. No, not this man. Give us Barabbas. The light, it's too bright for us. The, the contrast, it's too stark. We prefer the darkness. Give us Barabbas. When Pilate tries one last time to release Jesus, saying, chapter 19, verse 15, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests, they answer, we have no king but Caesar. Now, for religious leaders in Israel to make such a statement, that was the greatest shock and the greatest betrayal of all. To prefer Barabbas over Jesus was one thing, I guess. But to prefer Caesar over Jesus was almost worse for an Israelite. The Jewish people resented the rule of Rome. Here was a pagan empire exacting taxes from them and lording it over them in their own homeland. They were desperate to be rid of Caesar. Yet this meek and this gracious king before them, he was so repugnant to them that they preferred even the tyrant of Rome. The choice before that crowd comes to us as our choice, even today as we hear the story of Easter and we're confronted with the person of Jesus Christ. 
Will we recognize this meek and this humble king who comes to us not with a sword, but with a message of truth? Will we see in his suffering and his impending death the outworking of his sovereign will to save, to save sinners like me and sinners like you? And will we submit to his rule and trust in his salvation? Or, or like the crowd, will we in hard-hearted hypocrisy reject him and turn away from him? I wonder what is your choice today. I wonder what is your personal response to this crucified king. If you've never responded to him and his offer of salvation, would you do so? W would you do so even today? He offers you forgiveness through his death. He offers you a place in his eternal kingdom. And he offers you those things if you will but come to him in repentance and in faith. If you will but bow the knee to Jesus Christ. In a world where we so desperately need the assurance of leadership that has integrity and true power to rule and true power to save in the darkest times. We, the people of Jesus Christ, have cause for assurance and we have reason to celebrate. Jesus is our Lord and he is the true ruler. He is God's appointed King of Kings. This humble servant this crucified king, he is currently seated at the place of supreme authority on high at the Father's right hand. And he will return in power and in glory to claim his kingdom and to gather his people. This Easter, let's worship and adore this gracious Messiah, our Lord and our God. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called, Who is the True King? And if you want to make sure that you don't miss a broadcast, you can always get the Encounter the Truth app, and that's a great way to listen whenever it fits your schedule. Now, you can find the app by going to your favorite app store or link you to it through our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, whether you listen to Encounter the Truth on this radio station, you listen online, or you listen through the app, it's all made possible because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you not one, but two copies of Jonathan's book, The King, the Cross, and the Meaning of Easter. And Jonathan, for the person who uh, reads this book, what are you hoping that they're going to take away from it? Well, Steve, I've really got two types of reader in mind for this brief book. One is the follower of Jesus who's grappling afresh with the meaning of Easter and uh, looking afresh at, at, at the gospel accounts, particularly John's gospel. This book is based in John's gospel. And I, I'm trusting that for the believer, there will be a fresh sense of wonder that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is uh, the eternal Son of God, who is supreme in all the universe, nonetheless should allow himself to be subject to a human trial and a human crucifixion, a human punishment for criminals, though he had done no wrong, in order that he might be our Savior. And I think in seeing this, seeing the authority and the humility of Jesus in this, we gain a fresh sense of wonder at who he is, at, at his sheer magnificence. Uh, 
And and then for the reader who who doesn't yet know the Lord Jesus personally is still grappling with what all this means and what Easter is about, I trust that this presentation of the message of Easter, and in particular the kingship of Jesus, will help clarify the, the meaning of Easter and who Jesus is, and will help readers to make a personal response. And there is set out there a way to respond personally to the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Well, we want to send you not one, but two copies of Jonathan's book, The King, The Cross, and The Meaning of Easter. One for you to read and one for you to give to someone who you know might be struggling with the true meaning of Easter or someone who doesn't even know Jesus this Easter season. I just ask you to give a gift of any amount. Our toll-free number is 1-833-99-TRUTH. And our website, it's EncounterTheTruth.org. Again, the phone number, 833 833- 998-7884 or the website encounterthetruth.org. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.